With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. That day when evening came, he said to the disciples, let us go over to the other side. Jesus is on the move, and we are going with him in the text. Hi, everybody. It's good to see all of you, those of you who are gathered here, those of you who are gathered online. We're thrilled that you're you're joining us today. So if this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. I'm happy that we can gather and that God is no respecter of distance, but that we can all be together, whether we're digitally or in person. We are zooming out to see movement in the scriptures. And sometimes we have to do that. We actually have to pull back and see wider sections of the text in order to understand what the author is trying to to, uh, tell us. So let me give you a little reminder of what we're up to currently. Mark chapter 3, we see um, that Jesus calls his disciples that he might send them out eventually. And then in Mark chapter 6, he began to send them out. So everything that's between Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6 is kind of, well, it's not kind of, it is. It's training. There are things that Jesus wants his disciples to fully understand so that he can send them out. And if that's the case, it is very likely that there are things that you and I can learn, right? There's a certain amount of integration that we can, we can take from this. Um, so it's not just what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, but it's also what Mark is trying to, to tell future disciples, you and me, of what's going on here. So maybe we can understand, and maybe we can integrate, and maybe we can go and do likewise, which would be a whole lot of fun. So what we've learned so far is that Jesus gives them a sense of identity. Remember in Mark chapter 3, after he calls them, he has this uh, discussion about family members. And and. And anyone who does the will of God is his brother or his sister. That's an identity. We are identified with Jesus. In fact, we sang about it earlier, I am a child of God, right? So there's an identity factor that's going on here. So the very first thing that Jesus wants his disciples and what Mark wants us to understand is that our identity, first and foremost, is that when we do the will of God, we are actually part of that family that we are indeed children of God. Then we learned about this idea of word and kingdom, this um, series of parables where you had two about the word and you had two about the kingdom. If we want to see the kingdom of God, we sow the word of God. We spread it around liberally and we don't care where it lands because sometimes it's going to take root, sometimes it isn't, but the point is God's the one who makes that whole thing grow and so we just sow as liberally, liberally and generously as we possibly can. And it makes me wonder, if we don't see the kingdom, are we actually sowing his word or something else? There's a thought. Take out your journal and you can, you can journal about that at some point today. Now today we're going to get to the heart, um, we're going to get to the meat of Jesus' seminary. That's what I'm calling this. Jesus' seminary between Mark chapter 3 in Mark chapter 6. <clears throat> the narrative that we're, we're moving into uh, runs through three stories. And there's a good chance that you've heard all of these. So if you, if you do have your journal or your notebook with you, you might want to write um, some of these things down as we go along. But there are three stories in particular that we're going to move through. And I want you to see... Um, Uh, how they're constructed, and then I'm going to make some comments. I'll I'll point some things out as we go along. So 
Here we go. <clears throat> Here's the first story. You probably have seen this one. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they, they took him along just as he was in the boat. So he didn't prep or anything. He just hopped in the boat and he went. Then a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I wonder if he was cranky when he got up. Because I know that, you know, when I'm you know, taking the snooze and, well, in my case, it's usually one of the cats in the house decides to jump on my head or something like that. I wake up a little bit cranky, so I wonder if Jesus did as well. But there he is, sleeping in, in, you know, quite soundly in the boat, even though that there's a squall going on, and the disciples, of course, get all upset. <clears throat> he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Or in David language, knock it off. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Now, I know we've read this before, but imagine this as a movie scene, right? Can you imagine the CGI for this thing? All of a sudden, you see, you know, the thunder and lightning or whatever the squall was and the wind and the waves, and then nothing. It's just peaceful and still. A few words, he changed the set of circumstances. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? This is interesting. This is one of those verses at at some point I'm going to come back to and try to unpack a little bit more. But notice their reaction. They didn't get defensive. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. That's crazy. Can you imagine that? Now, what I find so interesting here is that the word for terrified, now we think scared. Mm-mm. It's more than that. It, it actually is three, three separate Greek words to get one idea across. And it's phobeo, megas, phobeo. Phobia, right? We get the word fear, phobia from, um, from this Greek term. But it's megas, mega, a lot. So afraid, really afraid. Hence, terrified, right? So in the text, we find something that's uh, got uh, several modifiers to it in order to convey this, a certain amount of intensity here. So we've seen the story. How many of you have seen the story before? You've read this? Yeah, okay. So Jesus comes, he calls, calms the story with, a, with a, a couple of words. And, and I've heard this said, and you probably have too, That if Jesus can calm the storm on the Sea of Galilee, he can calm the storm in your life. Have you heard this? Of course he can. That's very true. But um, what's really going on here? Do you think that this is just about calming storms? Is that all that's being played out in this text? Let's continue reading, and I think think you're going to see that there's something else happening here. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. 
This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Okay, we need to talk a little bit about this. Because in, in the ancient world, if you lived among the tombs, that was a symptom of insanity. So obviously, there's some mental issues that are going on here. But he couldn't be bound even with a chain. And, and from the text, it implies that somebody tried multiple times to chain him up and he broke the chains. Now, look, we could have a discussion about ancient technology and the ability to forge metal and the tensile strength of metal and what. It's iron. I don't care how strong you think you are. Good luck trying to break that. What's being conveyed in the text here is there is something supernatural about the physical strength of this individual. The only thing that I can, I can compare this to in a, in a current setting is that if you talk to a police officer about dealing with somebody who's high on PCP, there is a physical strength that is almost unholy. And that's a, a similar idea of what's being conveyed here. Somebody tried to subdue him with metal, and it didn't work. <clears throat> then it goes on. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And the word here is screaming. He'd scream. And, and cut himself with stones. It wasn't because he was cutting himself, he was screaming. Both of those things were symptoms of what was going on inside of him. This is a picture of someone who is completely and utterly lost. And in the ancient world, he would have been without hope. You have to understand the context of this. Mark is trying to paint a picture of the worst case scenario that he can possibly imagine. And the circumstances, and of course this particular individual, um, are terrifying and so Mark goes on to describe this and, and he says that the possessed man runs up to Jesus and a conversation ensues between the two of them. And we learn that there are many evil spirits inside of this man. In fact, Jesus you know, asks for the identity and, and says, we are a legion for we are many. What's a legion? A legion is a unit of military, uh, or size of a military unit in the Roman army. It was a lot of people. And so when he said legion, they're actually co-opting this word to convey the fact that there are so many evil spirits inside of him. And in the course of the conversation, Jesus sends them into a herd of pigs who subsequently um, drown themselves in the sea. And we've heard this story, many of us have heard this story as well. So let's pick up the story in verse 14. Those who were attending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. Why? It's to cover themselves, right? They don't want to be blamed for killing all those pigs. Because you live in a society where uh, the amount of food that you produce is your wealth. And so they just lost a whole lot of wealth that drowned in the water. 
and the people went out to see what had happened. Well, yeah, it's like what happens at a train wreck. People come out and they want to, it's called horrified fascination. Have you ever had this? You're like, I don't really want to see this, but I can't look away. The nightly news is kind of like that for me these days. I don't know about you, but that's kind of how I feel about it. <clears throat> but we have this, this, this story. They, they want to see what happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Huh? Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Okay, there's a lot of stuff going on here. I have to say this is one of my most favorite stories in all of Scripture. I've, I've spent some time trying to understand it, and I'm still learning things about it. But the picture here of the man is in stark contrast to the one that we first read about at the beginning of chapter 5. The first thing is he's sitting there. He's peaceful. He's not screaming. He's not cutting himself anymore. He's peaceful. He's dressed. Please understand the dignity in a clean, fresh pair of clothes. There he is. He's dressed. And he's in his right mind. He's in his right mind. And I, I have to believe that this is a picture of salvation in its most basic form. We tend to think in, of, of salvation as something that's completely spiritual, but it's not. There's, that's only a part of the picture. But here we have a picture of salvation, a man who is beyond hope, who is sitting there acting normal. And what I find is so interesting about all of this is that the people were afraid. They thought they were afraid of the person who was demon-possessed. But if you think about it, it's like, okay, so some guy just subdued the strongest person that we know? Yeah, I think I'm going to be terrified of that too. And they pleaded with Jesus to leave. It's like, yeah, we don't, we don't want to replace one with another, so please just, you know, just take your stuff and go, kind of a thing. Now, very often <clears throat> when we read this particular verse, um, it, it's, it's easy to get all concerned about demons and demon possession and all of those kinds of things. It's very easy to do that. A couple things I want to say. First and foremost, let's not focus on that. Let's talk about the goodness of God, okay? Let's not get wrapped up in, in demonology and the study of this kind of stuff. Let's talk about the goodness of God. And secondly, and I think this is most important, do you think this story is just about evil spirits? Do you think that this is some kind of a handbook for de dealing with, with that kind of stuff? Huh. Jesus moves on, so let's move on. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat, and he's been on the water quite a bit, Right? Must be nice. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Well, yeah, of course, they saw him coming. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, 
My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived and live. So Jesus went with him. Any father can identify with the plight of Jairus. He's a, he's a synagogue leader. He's a religious type. He's the kind of guy that Jesus has been tussling with back in chapter 4. But the difference is Jairus is desperate. There's nothing that can be done for his daughter, and he knows it, so he goes to the one person who might be able to help, and he falls at his feet. Jesus agrees and starts off with Jairus. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up and behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Jesus has a reputation at this point, right? So this is what she believes. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. How cool is that? At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can can even ask that question, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Boy, that got awkward for a minute, didn't it? Yeah. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Told him what happened. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. A couple things we need to understand about this. Remember, whenever we open the Bible, we're tourists. There are certain customs that we need to be aware of so that we understand what's actually happening in the story. Under Jewish law, this woman would have been unclean because of her bleeding. We don't necessarily know what kind of bleeding it was. There are certain, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, Suspicions about that. Um, But if you're bleeding you're considered unclean under Jewish law, which means, quite, quite literally, that you are unfit for worship. You would not be allowed in the temple. There'd be other places that you, you weren't allowed. And in fact, you were supposed to let everybody else know so that they wouldn't touch you because if they touched you, then, then they would be ceremonially unclean as well. Does this make sense? So you have this kind of Jewish custom in play here. She is unclean. So anyone who touched her would be unclean until they went through a purification ritual, which, by the way, um, wasn't the easiest thing to do. It wasn't like just going in and washing your hands. But there was actually a ritual that was involved. There is no way that she should have been in a crowd of people with her condition. That in and of itself was probably grounds for additional punishment. She should not have been there. And if she were in the crowd to begin with, the thought of touching a rabbi while she was unclean 
was an enormous risk. We are not talking about, oh, that's just a bad idea, slap on the wrist. No, 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 no. There were all kinds of ramifications to this. Again, she's desperate. Can you imagine what it felt like, though, when she took the risk and it paid off in a big way? She knew something had happened. But also notice, too, when Jesus asks, who touched me? What was her response? Fear. She was trembling with fear, and yet what she received was grace and mercy. Now, wait a second. Didn't we start this story with with Jairus and his daughter? Didn't we do that? Yeah, I thought so too. Okay, while Jesus was still speaking to this woman, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, in case you forgot who Jairus was. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. He goes on. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kuom, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. You think? (laughs) Yeah. Completely astonished. That's really interesting. We started with Jairus' daughter, and then we had the story about the sick woman, and then we had Jairus' daughter again. So kind of a story wrapped in a story, kind of like a literary sandwich. Didn't we just see one of these before? Yes, this is what we call an inclusio, a story wrapped in a story. And every time a New Testament writer uses an inclusio, he's waving a flag, sending up a flare, trying to tell you that there's something very important that's going on here and we need you to understand or to look a little bit deeper, to look underneath the hood, to see what's happening within the story. And you think that this is just about healing? I don't think so. I think there's more to this movement between these three stories that happen in rapid succession. And let's try to understand this. For just one moment, I want you to consider what human beings are most afraid of. What will stop you in your tracks? Natural disasters. Supernatural evil. Sickness and death. I mean, isn't this the stuff that we make movies out of? And aren't there blockbusters about these types of things? Think about the scariest movie you ever saw. My guess is it probably has something to do with one of these three things. 
you have to follow the movement. Jesus calms a storm. He removes a legion of violent demons, simply commanding them. And he heals a woman without effort and raises a dead girl with a word. Make no mistake that these are not separate stories. This is a single narrative. This isn't just about sermons in Sunday school. Mark is trying to tell us something here. And ultimately, I think what he's trying to explain to us is that these scary things, these things that actually will keep us up at night, especially when the tornado sirens go off, right? When we see those types of things, all of these terrifying things, we, we see them and they stop us in our tracks and, and they change the course of our lives at time. And, and he's using these to make a point that Jesus is declaring his lordship. He is Lord over the entire natural created order. He is Lord of all the spiritual realms as well. And he is Lord over sickness and in death. And when he, we read about these stories and we see that he is Lord over these things, he is ultimately saying that the king has come, that the kingdom of God is slamming into the earth in an explosion of goodness and power and mercy. That's a good point, David. That's good news. Yes. The question, though, and I think it's the one that is begging to be asked, so let's ask it. Why? Why? Why is there this notion of lordship here in the seminary, in the seminary that Jesus is taking his disciples through. Why? Why is lordship the important piece of this puzzle? Why is it at this point in Mark's gospel? Why doesn't he put these stories somewhere else? Why here? Well, let's look. Mark chapter 3. He appointed 12 that he might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. The issue here is authority. Jesus is proclaiming that it is his to give. As Lord, he has the ability and the power to give authority away. He has that. The king has come. Now, how do you think this impacted the disciples? I mean, I think it gave them backbone and courage, the ability to go out and, and say, hey, we've seen the Lord do these things. He has given us authority to do things in his name. And guess what? In Mark chapter 6, that's exactly what they go and do. They preach, they drive out demons in the name of Jesus, and they anoint people with oil and they get better. There's all those things. But here's, here's the thing for us. Because we have to understand the text as it, as it stood then in order to understand what it means for us right now. The same Spirit of God is in you. It's not just reserved for these 12 disciples 2,000 years ago. But rather, the same Lord who quieted the sea and cast out demons and healed the sick woman and raised the dead girl, that same authority is in you. 
The same one. The same kingdom is your home. And when we do the will of God, when we try to advance the kingdom, we are identified with Jesus himself, and we already know he is Lord, do we not? Yeah. That authority is given to you in his presence. And I think what's interesting is that what Jesus has done in the past, he will do again and will continue to do. And some of you can testify to that because you've seen his lordship on display in powerful ways just like this. Because he is still lord of the natural world. He's still lord over supernatural evil and he's still lord over sickness and death. That part hasn't changed. And so in the seminary of Jesus, as we look at what Jesus is trying to train in his disciples and what ultimately Mark is trying to communicate to us is that lordship is still in play and that authority is still available to you and me. So I don't know what your week looks like. I don't know the things that you're wrestling with. Gina was right when she was praying. I swear we wake up to something new every single day. Guess what? God's still on the throne. And I'm going to say something that I'm going to get in trouble for, but I'm going to say it anyway. A vaccine can't save you, ultimately. No political party can save you. There are things that are at work in this world that we don't fully understand, but Jesus is still Lord. Now, I'm not telling you not to take precautions for yourself. You need to make up your mind on all of that. And I think we still need to be prudent. There's a big difference between being wise and being fearful. But please understand that all of this that we experience on a day-to-day basis is under the lordship of Jesus. And you need to seek him as you try to make decisions about how to live in a world that seems to have gone completely haywire. But that lordship extends to you and your discipleship. And when you are in his presence, you will find his authority. Whatever that means for you. I don't know what it means for you. I'm not God. And aren't you glad of that? (laughs) But rather, try to understand that the circumstances are not beyond the control of a father who loves you very much. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good You demonstrated your goodness to those people 2,000 years ago. You told the wind and waves to shush. (laughs) You commanded terrifying evil to leave. You healed a woman without any effort at all. You felt the power leave your body. And you raised a dead girl. Why? Because you're Lord. And right now, God, I sense that all of us need your Lordship. We need to be reminded that there is no kingdom without a king. 
that there is a king. And so wherever people are at, whether they're watching online or whether they're here live with us, I pray, Lord, that you would reach down in their heart and kind of tap them to remind them that you're still on the throne and that you're always available, that we can boldly enter the the throne room of God himself and to, to ask him what he thinks about the circumstances we're facing and that you're still a savior and you still care a great deal about us. God, your spirit is evident in this room today, and I'm grateful for that. I trust, too, that you're evident in the homes of the people who are watching. I pray that as Dan sings and as we sing along, that you would, you would speak clearly, beautifully, and powerfully to each one of us, customizing that message in ways that we would understand. Thank you, God, for being Lord. And thank you, God, for sharing that authority with us. Help us to have courage to take you up on it. In Jesus' name, amen.